morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Tuesday, February 22nd. Families of troops killed in training awaiting justice. More on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. A winter storm warning is officially in effect for San Diego County's mountains through tomorrow. Snow, icy roads, and reduced visibility is expected. Division Chief Talbot Hayes with the U.S. Forest Service says people should wait for the storm to pass before traveling to the mountains. He also says that there's a silver lining to the storm. We're behind the curb on our rainfall and snow this year, so we're actually very excited about getting this snowfall and rain. It's uh, kind of a two-edged sword. We do need the pre- precip and the water, but also that comes with additional hazards of driving. He also says snow chains will be required on mountain roads. He says you should inspect your car before you travel up to the mountains and be sure to have emergency supplies on hand. San Diego gas prices are climbing again after a one-day pause over the weekend. The average price of unleaded hit $4.74 a gallon yesterday. That's up four-tenths of a cent from Thursday. Like for many people, electrician William Glasham says the rising gas prices are impacting his finances. But I'm not making as much money because I'm dumping 40 bucks instead of 20 bucks. AAA says they don't expect gas prices to go down anytime soon. Today is World Spay Day, a day dedicated to reducing the number of pets in shelters. The San Diego Humane Society is marking the day by encouraging local pet owners to spay or neuter their pets. The Humane Society offers low-cost spay and neuter services to qualified individuals in the San Diego region, including those receiving government assistance and active members of the military. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. Donations come in many forms, a sustaining membership, a one-time gift, even that extra vehicle you no longer need. Learn more about the advantages of donating a vehicle. Here's how. Go to kpbs.careasy.org or call 877-KPBS-CAR. Parents of eight Marines and a sailor who died in a training accident in 2020 say they are worn down by a system that is slow to change. KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh spoke with some of the families. Very loving boy. Loved his dad, his sisters, me. It's been over 18 months since Lupita Garcia's son was killed in a training accident. 21-year-old Lance Corporal Marco Barranco drowned along with eight other troops when his vehicle sank off the coast of Southern California in July 2020. I always thought the military was very organized. They knew what they're doing. Garcia wanted to meet me at a park in Montebello, just east of L.A. When he was still in high school, Marco worked out in this park with a group of Marines to prepare him to enlist. His name has since been added to a local veterans memorial at the other end of the park. I believe in God. I have faith. And sometimes I just say this is what God wanted. Regardless. But I don't accept that it was in training. That's what really, really gets me so angry. Why in training? Garcia is among a group of parents who have sat in the audience during a series of hearings at Camp Pendleton. Hearings to determine whether some of the leaders involved that day will be kicked out of the Corps. It's just, doesn't end. You're, you know, our wounds are just like still open and they're putting salt on it, you know. And 
yeah, I just didn't feel anything like, oh, okay, I feel better now. Absolutely not. July 30th, 2020, eight Marines and one sailor drowned returning to the USS Somerset from San Clemente Island in an amphibious assault vehicle. The armored personnel carriers become boats in the water. Some of the aging vehicles broke down. Their unit was so far behind schedule that their ship moved away to another exercise. Battalion Commander Lieutenant Colonel Michael Regner testified that in the confusion he didn't understand which AAV was sinking. Forty-five minutes later, the track with Garcia's son went under, with several troops still fighting to get out. I don't feel like we're getting justice, but all I hear in these boards, they're going in circles, pointing fingers at each other. Alita Bath is the mother of 19-year-old PFC Evan Bath of Wisconsin. She has been at nearly all of the hearings. At least three officers in charge that day have been allowed to stay in the Corps. Each officer said they told their commanders about problems. None of them stopped the exercise. They're supposed to be Marines, but no one's taken responsibility and no one is being held to be responsible. So me sitting in that chair, if nothing else, they have to look at me. The Marines and Navy produced multiple reports pointing to serious lapses in training and equipment breakdowns. And this isn't the only accident. 60 Marines have died in training in the last five years. Congressman Seth Moulton of Massachusetts is on the House Armed Services Committee. Moulton is also a former Marine officer who rode on an AAV in combat. To be honest, I was worried they might sink, and that seemed to be the prevailing uh, sentiment. He says they didn't feel safe riding inside the vehicle while crossing a river leading into Baghdad during the initial invasion, so they rode on top. This gets back to the culture. If, if, that, if I had that concern as a, as a young second lieutenant 20 years ago, then you know why has the Marine Corps not satisfactorily addressed that since then? It took another 18 months after the accident for the Marines to finally pull the aging AAVs from sea duty. Moulton says the harder question is whether the Marines can create a culture where officers are empowered to halt an exercise when they see a problem. Nancy and Peter Vienna's son, Navy Hospital Corpsman Christopher Bobby Nem, drowned that day. For a while, he was the guy that was joking around trying to make everybody stay calm. But what he was doing was trying to help other people take off their, their gear. Technically, they aren't even Gold Star families. Congress reserves that title for families of those killed in combat, not training. Steve Walsh, KPBS News. California has entered a new phase in the fight against COVID-19, but not everyone is ready to ease into the new normal just yet. KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman has more. Kearney Mesa resident Bianca Santos received a kidney from her cousin a few years ago. She since had to take immune-compromising drugs to keep her body from rejecting the organ. That means the flu or even food poisoning can be enough to send her to the hospital. Being high risk, she's mostly been staying at home during the pandemic. I don't want to regret it at the end of the day, knowing that, oh, I hung out with someone who's actually positive. That's what scares me right now. Those who are immunocompromised may not get full or any protection from COVID-19 vaccinations, so extra doses are being recommended. But Santos isn't sure how to feel about transitioning into the next pandemic phase. The last few days, I keep thinking about the words like the world has moved on without me or without people 
who are undergoing the same things as I do. Santos is hoping to take a new antibody treatment that should give her some immunity against infection. Matt Hoffman, KPBS News. The statewide mask mandate has been lifted, but not for California schools. State health officials plan to review the policy next week. In the meantime, schools continue to face resistance to masking. Carrie Avila is a teacher and the president of the Vista Teachers Association. She spoke to KPBS Midday Edition about how it's leaving local teachers in the middle. The educators are also frustrated about the constant changes and the lack of clarity in some of our policies. I want them to know that our Our profession has profoundly changed. And just to know that they're doing what's best for your student, you know, and we all want it to return to how it was before. Take the politics out of the classroom. She also says teachers are divided on the issue of whether or not masks should continue to be worn in classrooms. Check out the KPBS Midday Edition podcast for the full interview. Coming up, the Oceanside Film Festival starts today. We'll have more on what's being screened next, just after the break. Hey, 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 this is Parker Edison, host of the Parker Edison Project on KPBS. The cool thing about joining KPBS is you make one simple donation, and that money ripples into supporting everything else you see and hear on KPBS, including podcasts like this one you're listening to right now, making a place for fresh voices and perspectives to be heard. And that's music to my ears. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click that blue Give Now button, and donate what you can. All right? Thanks. The Oceanside International Film Festival kicks off today. It's being held in person this year after being virtual for two years because of the pandemic. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando spoke with the festival's executive director, Lou Niles. She begins by asking him about the start of the festival. Our opening night, we're extremely excited about. It's the 20th anniversary of the film Blue Crush. Carly, my wife and also the co-programmer and artistic director of the film festival worked on that film back in the early 2000s so she called up a bunch of her friends we decided to have a see if hey can we pull together a 20th anniversary nobody else is doing it except us so the director john stockwell's really excited uh, sonoy lake who's one of the actresses and surfers in the film and, and of course kate bosworth is coming too and she's really excited and let's listen to a little bit of a scene from Blue Crush. Who is that? You. That was the first time you beat me at the Menehune contest in Haleiwa. He's talking all that trash and how you would be number one. I was so pissed at you, because I knew you would be. The boys were spinning. Remember that? They had to throw up some <laughs> rule barring you from the boys' contest. 
about how this film is appropriate for the Oceanside Film Festival because you are a beach community and you are interested in things like surfing and other outdoor sports like this. It, it really is. I mean, we feel like we're not reaching and just picking some random film that had its 20th anniversary because, of course, Carly worked on the film. I went and visited her for 10 days in Hawaii and experienced the, the wildness that was shooting on set at Pipeline. John Stockwell, the director of the film, he was in Top Gun. He plays Cougar in Top Gun, and, and there's kind of a weird tie-in to Oceanside there, too. So it, it, it all kind of worked together to really be something that, that we thought could happen, and, and it is happening. So how would you define the personality of the festival in terms of the kind of programming you do and the kind of films you look for? I think we've talked about this before. Where you like the, do we have the kind of these little curated special events that aren't, it's not just wall-to-wall films. Sometimes we have these interesting things. It may have something to do with TV, like Animal Kingdom, or it may have something to do with music, like uh, Mrs. Henry's Last Waltz. We had Taylor Steele do a kind of a curated talking story about some of the scenes that were cut from his films. And that's what we really like. We like to kind of base that as kind of the anchors throughout our, our festival. And we always have a surf block. We always have some kind of cause environmental related films. But we really let it, our, our festival become what was sent to us that year. And then Carly and Sterling do an amazing job of curating the film blocks that there may be an animated a narrative and a documentary in the same block. So you're not going to see a, a block of documentaries or a block of narrative shorts. Um, they tie together with different themes, you know, like we have Extraordinary People is one of our themes, our Sustainable Planet, Thrills and Kills, Family Dynamics, and we have our Surf and Skate block, of course. So some of them are really kind of creative titles that tie together some sort of theme that's going on in the different films. Uh, and it's some of them a little bit more literal, but we like to just ha- see what comes in. And that's kind of what grows the festival each year. You have this fabulous documentary, The Whale of Lorino, which really gets to some very complicated issues because it's not it's not necessarily what you think it's going to be because it ends up showing how complicated environmental issues can be. I, I work my regular job in sustainability and health and wellness. And so I, I think it's wonderful when we can show these amazing films that kind of tell some of the truths that, that people are living that it might be easy from, you know, a desk in Southern California somewhere to say, oh, well, we need to do this, we need to recycle, and we need to be not farm those types of animals or fish these types of fish. Um, when it's something that, you know, maybe for hundreds of years certain people have done, it's, it's their way of life. It's how they even, you know, have energy or light in their shack, these, these animals. So... It's really fascinating to me. And that's, I think, the wonderful thing about filmmaking is some of these stories that just come in and blow us away over the years. You know, like uh, Top Rack from Turkey a couple of years ago. And I feel like The Whale of Florino is another one that just really takes you deep into a place you never even would have thought existed or that you would never experience in your normal life. Were there any films that particularly stood out for you that are your favorites? Well, I'm I'm a little biased to the to the surf block. I I really like this uh, Keep It a Secret, which is our headliner on Saturday night. It's a surf film about surf discovery in the '70s in Ireland. Which that's interesting, Ireland and surf discovery. You, there's a lot of films about that, but it doesn't just 
focus on surfing, it dives in a lot to the troubles, you know, what it was like to, you know, be a, a youth trying to go surfing and then trying to, you know, run a machine gun gauntlet or, you know, anything terrible could happen. It was definitely scary and threatening. Let's hear a clip from that film. When you have a surfboard on top of the car, the British Army would be, what the hell is that? And they would be bringing you in to check that there wasn't something in those surfboards that was a, I don't know, a rocket or whatever. <laughs> but you just got used to it. I mean, that was just the way. And you learned when you were driving from A to B, you just learned the areas not to go into. And tell people about your venue. Our venue is uh, the Brooks Theatre. It's in the heart of downtown Oceanside, right in the middle of the Oceanside Cultural District. It's a historic theater, and we've been there for quite a number of years now. Um, we will have our opening night uh, red carpet on Tuesday the 22nd at the Oceanside Museum of Art. So it's outside. They have a beautiful patio doing the red carpet with uh, the stars of the uh, cast and crew from Blue Crush. Uh, and then we'll walk the couple blocks that it is over to the Brooks Theater and enjoy the screening and have a great Q&A afterwards. And that was Lou Niles, executive director of the Oceanside International Film Festival. He was speaking with KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando. The Oceanside International Film Festival runs today through Sunday. And that's it for the podcast today. As always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening and have a great day.